when using the understanding of the ecosystem, how can you use that to drive consensus? And this is much like in political elections. In larger deals, you need to win a lot of votes. So they even come back to their head of sales. They go, yeah, I met Andy from KLM. They're on. They want to buy this. You go, whoa, did you meet Mr. KLM or did you meet Mr. AT&T or Mr. Bank of America or no, I met Andy. Oh, Andy, he's head of nothing and nothing. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Christopher Engman. Christopher is the co-founder and managing partner of Mega Deals Advisory and is the author of a book similarly titled Mega Deals. In our conversation today, Christopher shares his best practices for how to win those really big deals, what he calls Mega Deals. And we talk, first of all, about how winning a mega deal is a lot like winning a political contest, only what politics has in common with sales. We dive into how digital transformation has impacted how you sell large deals. Christopher and his team have conducted research into the six challenges that sellers face in selling to the enterprise. We dig into those. And then we dive into Christopher's five cornerstones of winning mega deals, his keys to winning these large deals. And we also talk about the importance of risk mitigation in your selling. Because as Christopher says, quote, values get you in the door, risk mitigation gets you the deal. So all of this and much, much more. Before we get to Christopher, though, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, well, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also leave us a review. Tell us how we're doing. Really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So uh, I feel like I'm delaying your bedtime or something. You're what? <laughs> what time is it in Stockholm right now? So it is. Uh, it's not that late. So it's eight o'clock. But now it starts to be like autumn. So it, it's getting darker fast. Yeah, I've, I've been in Stockholm on sorry, middle of December, and right. uh, yeah, it, it got dark really early. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think by I don't know. Felt like it sometime between two and three o'clock it was uh yeah we have kind of two extremes so in the summer uh it's it's kind of bright all the time and then in the winter it's dark all the time so much like you probably have in alaska or something yeah well i spent a fair amount of time in stockholm on business and yeah it was (laughs) where the first time i went uh was in may so it was Mm -hmm. yeah stayed stayed very late it starts to be bright yeah, and I remember waking up the first night, thinking, "Oh, I'd slept through, I'd slept through the night." And we were staying at, I think it was like the Grand Hotel down near the water. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, I, yeah. I opened open my curtains and I look out and I see this clock tower from the window of my hotel. Right. It's, it's like it says three, <laughs> and why is it still light? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it was very very different. So. But Stockholm's a great place. I really enjoyed spending time there. Yeah, I, I, I've lived in five countries, and I actually prefer staying here. So even though in the winter you might complain over the climate. but uh, Yeah. Werbee likes to get out of town by January, February, is my understanding. Mm, yeah. Having said that, now, like with climate change, I think uh, so. I've, I've lived a few years in Southern Europe, and... It's almost, if you're not by the sea, like June, July, August, it's almost, I mean, 
you survive obviously but it's not nice it's literally yeah. not nice no yeah not nice <laughs> yeah all right well, well let's let's uh let's jump in and talk about business um so you authored a book called mega deals and that's right. i guess the name of your company as well so you you say that you had started the first abm company so tell us about that yeah so in 2007 uh so I had I had succeeded and struggled selling into larger comp- companies and 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 I tried to find some kind of marketing vehicle to uh, sell to a, 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 a assist in selling into bigger comp- companies so matrix matrix organizations and where decisions are spread out cross functionally and cross hierarchy so right. uh, and there was a company I met that used IP numbers. For tracking purposes, so mm-hmm. they could tell who's been on the website, right? And I, I, I can kind of, you know, I have a mathematical IT background, uh, All right. even though I've spent my entire life in business. I've written a book actually about how to forecast government budgets, which is really geeky. But <laughs> I, I that's what we're going to talk about on the show today. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not today's book. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so. I was then going, well, if you can track using an IP number, uh, you know, ads on, on like, I don't know, Time, CNN, whatever, they right. are, they're like small web pages. So if you can, tar- if you can track with an IP number, you should be able to use the IP number to adjust the content. Right. So then I reached out to the biggest publisher in the Nordics and I said, can I use IP numbers to target ads towards specific companies? given that I have the IP numbers and they go, mm-hmm. no. And then I said, well, I guess you have, and then they go, yeah, we're actually using, we're using our own IP numbers to test ads. So they had one place in the system, in the advertising system where they could put in IP numbers, but their own, uh, but they were like, yeah, but it, you know, you can do like, you can do like 25 IP numbers or something. So you can't do a lot, which is not even a company mm-hmm. uh, normally. And then I said, but that's just the database setting. So, so, and, but it's not our, it's not our system, it's a German system. So I basically called, you know, I picked up the phone and called a software producer of that system. I said, could you change the attribute in your database so we can feed in many hundred thousand IP numbers? And they go, yeah, no problem. And the, the next day it was sorted. So we then started to use uh, broad media platforms to target specific accounts. Right. And we did that 2007, which is basically two years before someone like, for example, Demand Base, et cetera. And we, and we built a, that was kind of the fundament to building a company where we worked with, which is kind of the segue into mega deals, mm-hmm. where we, we were really early with ABM and we managed to get over 100 Fortune 500 companies as clients and over 400 tech scale ups um, across North America, Japan, Australia, I mean, across the world, basically. Um, and, um, for example, HP, Ulpac Enterprise was our biggest client, and they, we worked with them across three big regions. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but uh, however, I sold that company way too early. <laughs> so I had, <laughs> I had created two companies earlier, really great companies, but I didn't manage to get a lot of financial outcome myself. So I created two companies were kind of very mediocre outcome for me personally. And then I had the chance to sell this ABN company, for uh, I mean, not skyrocketing rocking numbers, but uh, my wife and I own seventy five percent of it, and we got a decent bid pretty early. So I was like, okay, 
I'm not doing a third company that is successful where I personally not get uh, a big outcome. So I basically took the bid, even though it was too early. Um, so anyway. Now you start a new company, though. Yeah, yeah. So, so the cool thing of that journey was that uh, uh, it, we had one bottleneck, and it was to run the strategic and tactical workshops around, for example, uh, so our client wanted to sell into AT&T or a Bank of America or Goldman Sachs or someone mm-hmm. like that. So uh, I and the British guy, we were the only two that could manage the tactical and strategic workshops prior to starting to massage a big account on behalf of our client. So the, the upside with that was that I was in a, I mean, hundreds of meetings like that, meeting mega dealers of these big accounts. Mm. Oftentimes with senior, like C-level C from the big companies, because these big deals are so important that the, the C-suite aren't getting engaged. So basically that was, and I did that for 10 years, and that created an enormous amount of data, not on paper or in a file, but in my head. Because I, I, in those meetings, we didn't talk only about marketing. We also talked about what they did from the sales side. So mm-hmm. I, saw, I saw over 100 Fortune 500 companies, over 400 tech scale-ups, what they did in situations like the mega deal space. So, and I realized that this is not covered in any literature. As soon as you're selling... As soon as you're selling cross-functionally, cross-hierarchy, and that what you sell is multi-complex, and the buying process is very tricky with, as you know, a matrix organization is kind of jumping around. So com- complex selling like challenger sale, solution sale doesn't cut it because they don't cover orchestration. They cover sales dialogue. So, so, so what we've seen is that the, biggest comp- the best companies in the world, they were really good at using marketing as well. So marketing and sales combined Mm-hmm. Selling as a team, blending marketing and sales throughout the journey, being com- very company specific. So what basically what account based marketing should be, but it's the kind of diluted so much now. Uh, and well, uh, why why do you say it's diluted? What's diluted it? Well, uh, most most companies that claim they use ABM, they're in my view they run traditional lead generation campaigns. It's just that they target companies. But what's new with that? Like, mm. I think in a real account-based marketing strategy, you're truly account-based. Like, you, you blend content uniquely for that account, and you, you, you address the content and the various marketing techniques connected to the buying phase, the various stakeholders, etc. And in all, all honesty, I see very few companies mastering that. Most of the time, the marketing team is running ABM campaigns, which is right. what, I, that's what I mean is diluted. So right. in, in my view, it's not really, I mean, this is going into semantics, but in my view, it's not really ABM. It's they're using the ABM term because it's cool and they're <laughs> labeling what they do under the ABM umbrella. Right. But is it really orchestrating marketing and sales around one deal? No, it's not. It's, it's very diluted. That's my All right, we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, that's, that's a great perspective. So before I move forward, is, is, so how are you defining a mega deal? Because you distinguish between you distinguish between a mega deal and enterprise deals. So I'll give you two answers. So when we did the study, because after having seen these many deals, uh, I together with another guy, a friend of mine, we decided let's research this properly. Instead of using my war stories and what I've seen in these rooms, let's make a proper research around. So we we spent another year interviewing uh, over sixty serial mega dealers 
through, throughout the world uh, to, to, to see if what we saw w- was confirmed by them. Mm. So, so that, that basically led to the Magadis book. Uh, but, but going back to the definition, when we did the research, we looked at deals. So the biggest deal we looked at was, was $15 billion. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was Boeing or Airbus, but one of the two. And this, the smallest we looked one was $10 million. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, what we see now is that as soon as it's actually not the amount, when you're selling, when you have, so I give you a few criteria. When you're sure. selling cross-functionally, you need to anchor the deal cross-functionally. Right. You need to anchor it on many hierarchical levels. Yep. And what you're selling is 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 com- complex, which is not like a, a Dropbox. It, it's like a CRM or an ERP or a, a nuclear plant or you know. Mm-hmm. It, 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 the, the, what you're selling is very hard to. So for a new salesperson, it takes takes a long time to learn. And not only that, the environment you sell into, you're interfacing with a variety of of systems. And when you have those four, you create an enormous key person dependency. We call it rainmaker dependency. So. In, if you look, even in the biggest companies in the world, so for example, Ericsson, uh, which is about 100,000 employees, uh, they have four, four names, and one of them at least needs to be personally involved in each big, big deal because there are so few. Even in IBM, for example, we've looked at some of their biggest deals, and I remember one deal we researched in Morocco. They had to fly in a Swiss guy. Because the, not a single person in the Moroccan IBM deal could orchestrate a large deal. So they flew in a deal orchestrator from, from Switzerland, and, and he was doing this all around the world. So uh, what you find both in the scale-ups that are doing larger deals and even in the Fortune 500 companies, it's a huge key person dependency around these transactions. And they're not doing the deals themselves, obviously, as you probably know. They're selling as a team, but the orchestration leader, that's not what they're called, but we call them that. They're, they're called like a strategic account manager, global account manager, things like mm-hmm. that. Program manager, various titles. But, but in reality, the orchestration of such a deal is so multi-complex that, that only a few people can do it. And this is what we wanted to look at. So we found people like that. So in Ericsson, we, we, we asked 40 people in the commercial organization and they gave us four names and we interviewed two of them. We did a similar thing in IBM, HP, SAP, similar organization. So uh, we, we wanted to find the Michael Jordans, if you want, uh, mm. from the large deal world. And, and we, we managed to find, it took a long time just finding them, honestly, because they're well hidden. And the big companies will never admit in public how dependent they are, number one, on the large deals. They represent a huge percentage of their total volume of money. Mm-hmm. And the huge percentage is, is then handled by a few Michael Jordans. So if, if those key persons are revealed outside, they're obviously getting headhunters on themselves immediately. Sure. And they're, so you never see them mentioned in the press releases around the big deal. They, those names are never mentioned. So the real mega dealers are hidden. It's typically the CEO and the CFO or someone like that is commenting a big, big contract. You see that if you read press releases, oh, yeah. you, will, you, yeah. you know that, yeah. 
whereas the, the mega dealers, they're never mentioned by name, which is actually a frustration for them. So one funny thing that we noticed during the interviews with these guys, we kind of found that this was a sensitive point. So we said, okay, Andy, so how does it feel when, when you spend three years on such a deal and then the CEO comes in and take the credit public in public? They're like, fucking shit. I, yeah, I'm so annoyed. <laughs> Sorry for swearing. It's like super annoyed. Because well, these, these, are, these high achievers obviously are also to some extent driven by recognition. Like they want to be recognized. I presume they are financially. Yeah. Well, they are. That's the thing. They are recognized financially. But when, for example, when they go to dinner with, with their closest friends and they're going like, yeah, you know, I was actually the key person in this deal with AT&T. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure. So, so you, you know what I mean? They're, well, sure. For those of us who have sold really large deals working for startups and scale-ups, uh, yeah, we've all experienced CEOs taking the credit for stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Founders do yeah. that. That's, uh, they're sort of entitled, I guess. Mm. Um, so we're talking about this key person dependency, the rainmaker used to talk about it, but mm. was there an effort in these organizations to reduce their dependency on these? Well, uh, this is, so I'll give you a big conclusion. So companies have tried to, to reduce the key person dependency around their largest deals for ages. They have bought sales training, they have bought better tools, but they're still uh, attempt after attempt in the same position. So mm-hmm. our conclusion is, is actually something different. So our main conclusion is that you, yeah, you can upgrade people, but you can't create Michael Jordans. Because there, there are just very few of them. That's just how it is. So it's better to build a structure around your key persons so that they scale. So the way we achieved that and what companies, that, the best companies so did, was to take the Andes and then, and then make sure that every bit of time that is repetitive in your week is taken out. Mm-hmm. So instead of you answering questions about GDPR compliance or a certain integration with SAP, that's recorded in a video, uh, or or it's it's actually done by by Carlos, who is the integration expert. So so what what we do in our engagements are with our clients. So we're using the understanding of how large deals are done, both from a marketing and sales perspective. We use the understanding of how decisions are made in the matrix organizations, and then we are. I mean, connected to your top sales enablement, we're designing videos and vehicles that are replacing a lot of the a lot of the repetitive tasks. And on a go-to-market blend level, we recommend fifty percent going into marketing and fifty percent into sales, which is something you very rarely see. Is over. Mm-hmm. It's often like ninety percent salespeople, ten percent marketing, which is completely the wrong formula. So instead, uh, instead, we're really pushing content and marketing vehicles, vehicles proactively into the most important accounts. And, and in that way, we're multiplying or giving the key, the Michael Jordan's longer arms and legs. And that formula is working really well. So I, I implemented that the first time in a company selling power plants where we managed to cut sales in half. We moved that saving into marketing. In terms of sales, sales staff in half, not sales staff. Sales yeah, we took away, yeah. we took out the second half of the sales staff basically, 
And the funny thing is that you think that that will really make a difference. It doesn't. Like that reduction, it doesn't cost you. I mean, you don't lose much power because they are not making a difference anyway. So, and instead, you give the Michael Jordans an enormous marketing power behind them. So, so I mean, we we're only having a, a short pod, podcast here, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, I think that that structure makes a lot of sense. It's the question then becomes, though, is as an organization, you have responsibility to look into the future and say, look, there's a possibility that we have this dependency on these key individuals, these you call mega dealers, that may very well leave. So how does a company plan for those transitions? I mean, of course, you, you want to look at the runner-ups, the ones that are not yet the Michael Jordans. Uh, they're the younger Charles Barkley, if we want to continue on the <laughs> NBA <laughs> analogies. Uh, so, so you need to foster new ones, obviously. I'm just saying that uh, what you often see is the answer to growth is adding sales full-time employees. So just adding pe- people in the, in the Excel or the Google Sheet, and you, you kind of put a quote on them, and then you show the CEO, this is how we'll grow. But any experienced CEO in the enterprise and mega deal space, they know that that formula very rarely holds. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if you have the four criteria that I gave you. So cross-functional, cross-hierarchy, sure. multiple systems on the customer side, and you're selling a portfolio, you're, you're, you're not succeeding easily with any... And you can't, it's not so easy to recruit salespeople and just bring them on board and expect them to perform within the within the first 10, 12 months, they won't. It's just too complex. Yeah, well, so it's still sort of and the question, it's still out there, because I, I think this is a really critical question, because yeah, there's always this thought that you know, it, in almost any sales, not in almost any salesperson, but there's you know a larger cadre of salespeople that if they just applied themselves in the right fashion, that they could become mega dealers. But I, my belief is that there's sort of a there's a profile. I'm not sure it's the same profile. I'm not sure exactly what what's in that profile, but I can give you the profile. Well, give us the profile then. What is the individual? What is that individual's profile that enables them to to grow into that role? Right. The interesting answer is that uh, if so, I give you uh, an image. So if you put like Tom, Dick, and Harry, sales guy in one room, hundred people. You put CEOs in one room and you put mega deals in a third room. If you walk between the rooms and you kind of chit chat with these guys, you'll totally distinguish the Tom, Dick, and Harry sales guys. The, the mega deals and the CEOs, you won't you won't see a difference. So they're CEO like. So so they they have characteristics of a CEO. And what we see is that many of those that we interviewed now a few years later, they are CEOs. So uh, they're very good. With the, so they have a few traits that you often see. You see it in serial entrepreneurs and you see it in, in big company CEOs. They see ecosystems moving. So they are the ones that, and you might be someone like that as well, Andy. So they see this happening here. This technical trend is happening. This society trend is happening. There's a new law. There's a new tech mm-hmm. thing coming up. And then they go, this will happen. And they're very good at explaining this to their client 
and so they're so good that they get the attention from the C-suite and get them to buy into a new way. And when you sell something that kind of uh, so that includes such a big change, it often includes big money as well. So, so if you take a regular sales guy with the same opportunity, he would come back with a one million dollar deal, whereas a mega dealer would come back with a three hundred million dollar deal mm-hmm. because they just see something else. The first yeah, one is trained, the first one is trained to see oh what's the customer problem how can we solve that. The mega dealer, much like, a, a, like a, an Elon Musk or something, they go, whoa, this is going on, this is happening. They pull in maybe a, another company that kind of co-sell with them a bigger solution and right. they, they orchestrate. We, we call them ecosystem architects. So they see where the ecosystem is heading, much mm-hmm. like Wayne Gretzky. Where is the puck going to come? Like right. uh, where it's going. So, yeah, so they where the puck is going to be, right. Yeah. Yeah, what's the contact going to be? So, um, so how do they orchestrate? So, let's dive into that a little bit. So, these people, these these yeah. uh, rainmakers, mega dealers, you call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you learned about what they do that makes them effective orchestrators right, right. of a complex motion? Yeah, multi multi dimensional sales motion. Yeah, that's a great question. So. Uh, we've we've seen so many things, but we've condensed. So we call it the DNA of, of mega deals. We call it. We also call it the cornerstones. There are five, uh, and the first one is that in order to get big money out of a client, you need to uh, use as an exit and a, so a qualification and disqualification criteria the customer's key initiative. So you need to look at the three to five big programs, big key, key initiatives that they're running and see mm-hmm. do you have a fit into one or many of them. And if you don't, if you want to make big deals, if you don't have a fit, exit. Because you might sell a small pilot, you will not, because the, the big money are, are in big companies almost always allocated unless there's a crisis, but in a standard like daily, like normal cadence, the big money is allocated into three to five big key initiatives. So unless you fit into one or many of those, mm-hmm. you, you're not going to make a big deal. So that's criteria. Num- that's, that, that's cornerstone number one. So key initiatives. The second one right. is maybe more obvious. So, okay, you are matching a key initiative. Now I need to understand what is the ecosystem. So we intentionally don't call it st- stakeholder mapping because in most large deals, it's not just the stakeholders inside the account you're selling to that are important. You typically need right. to you need to identify. Oh, we have five people from SAP here. Cr- critical. We we have this local municipality. We have three board members. We have one of the shareholders. We have so you need to understand. We have this technical consultant and McKinsey are in. You need to understand the whole ecosystem of stakeholders. Uh, uh, so so basically, ecosystem is the second point. And the the third one, which is the hardest, is how do you then use the understanding of the ecosystem around this deal is typically like 50 to a few hundred people involved in the deal. So the, the number that Gartner and those guys are using, that's like, I don't remember, 7.8 st- stakeholders. That's a wow. bullshit number because it's like taking it. So sometimes an average is, is destroying the reality. And so when you put all B2B deals in one bucket and you take the average, yeah, maybe it's 7.8 stakeholders. Right. But if, if you look at the these cross-functional, cross-hierarchy deals, no, it's not 7.8. It's more like 52, a few hundred stakeholders. 
So, so that, that number, I think, is, is destroying a lot of logic around how to deal with business. Anyway, sidetrack. Uh, so the, the third well, no, I, I think it's a great point, though. That the, the number, yeah, needs to be needs to be challenged. But go ahead. Yeah, totally, totally. So, so the, the third point is to how do you understand when using the understanding of the ecosystem? How can you use that to drive consensus? And this is much like in political elections. And you probably know this, Andy. In, in larger deals, you need to win a lot of votes. Mm-hmm. And it's not so junior junior salespeople. They're going, yeah. If Andy's on board, so they even come back to the head of sales. They go, yeah, I met Andy from from KLM. They're they're on. They want to buy this. And you go, whoa! Did you meet Mr. KLM or or did you meet Mr. AT and T or Mr. Bank of America or or Miss Mrs. Whatever? Uh, no, I met Andy. Oh, Andy, he, he's head of nothing and nothing. And and he he personally Which is wanted, so true. No, I, I I don't mean you obviously, but you know what I mean. I'm just making a right. a, a, a joke out of it. No, no, I was, I was, I was joking as well. Yeah. Um, so then, so how do you drive? And consensus is the trickiest part. Uh, to match key initiatives, super simple. You can put it in the sales. Anyone listening, put it in your weekly or biweekly sales meeting. Ask in each deal, are we matching a key initiative or not? Super easy to implement. And it's, you'll see that's, that change alone will move your numbers because you'll force people to focus on the right accounts at the mm. right time. Uh, so the third point, consensus, is, is very marketing-oriented. So to drive consensus in a big ecosystem, you can't do it face-to-face, not even over Riverside or Zoom or any kind of online vehicle. You need to use a lot of marketing vehicles. So some companies are calling us Cambridge Analytica but legal like your legal version of Cambridge. So we're helping, we're both advising our clients on how to do it, but we're also executing it ourselves occasionally, like participate in our customers' big deals as a marketing support organization where we're Mm -hmm. using 14 different marketing vehicles. And we're using, we have 29 different video formats. So it's a pretty comprehensive uh, machine. So when you say 14 different vehicles or channels, so... Give us a sense of what those are. Well, so, so uh, one is is uh, obviously the one I invented 2007, which is that you target, the, this is mm-hmm. kind of the most obvious one. You target the IP numbers of the organization you're selling to. So dry, to drive the, 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 the votes your way, you, you're exposing videos, ads, and articles to the employees in AT&T, for example, mm-hmm. at scale. Right. Uh, but we're also blending it with, we're using a few techniques from things like TikTok, we're using uh, uh, we're using something called person-based marketing, where we we're actually we're doing quite a few workarounds in Instagram and Facebook to ring fans. It's not individuals, but it's group of individuals, so we can see okay the board members of the company where do they live, and we ring fans their houses, mm-hmm. not a house, but a few houses. So we're using quite a we created quite a, a, a quite a, a comprehensive workflow around how to use multiple vehicles to influence the right stakeholders in in a large deal uh, and also outside of that organization um, but the key thing to be able to do that though and you you talk about this in your material is is that you need to have internal consensus on the messaging yes right? thank you because you have to be like a political campaign you have to be very consistent at hammering home the yeah. key message 
Can I give you the last two and then we can come? Let's see it's my favorite point. So let's let's spend most time on that. So the, the number three is to identify several Trojan horses. So these are individuals further down in the organization that will give you vital information that you can't get hold of. So they're your informers, your spies, basically. The Trojan horses are your spies. Yeah, okay. Trojan horses, yeah. That's what we call them in the book. Uh, a, a, a mega dealer from Accenture, she, she called them mushrooms. They grow in the mm-hmm. dark, so they're not the mm-hmm. loud. They're silent, but they'll, they'll, their way to exercise power, Andy, is that they give you information. Right. They don't have informal or formal power. Their way to get their way is that they leak information. Well, just like politics, right? Yeah, this yeah, is where the, yeah, this yeah. Is where the, pol- the political example can be extended. Yeah. Is, yeah, is, totally. yeah, and people that they give information on background to, to yeah. journalists are influencing the discussion because that's how they exercise power, yeah. Exactly. And the last point before segueing into positioning and messaging is, is risk mitigation. So most, most sales and marketeers, salespeople and marketeers, we're trained at selling the upside, the business case, the unique selling points. Those things are just bringing you through the door. Risk mitigation is what closes the large deals. So mm-hmm. uh, big organizations are very risk mitigation oriented. So if you as a marketing and sales team are not proactively working with the client on their risk mitigation, you will not win the deal. So segue, segue into messaging. So the biggest thing we've seen, uh, apart from the first one I gave you, which is that it's not so easy to copy the Michael Jordans. You need to right. scale them. Okay. Right. The second huge insight is that we've, we've used the understanding of how matrix organizations are making decisions what decisions are made on which level. And we've created something which is kind of the next level after stating the problem and the solution, which everyone does. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so we've looked at, for example, when I speak to a C-level person in a company with 20,000 employees, they're not interested in products. They talk about vision, mission. Mm-hmm. They also address these are the five, 10 biggest obstacles we have. And then they materialize that into key initiatives. Hence mm-hmm. the, the first point. And then they look at direction. So, so underneath the problem, instead of going for the solution, we say, okay, what categories of solutions are there that can solve your problem? I mean, if you have a growth issue, it's not necessarily to bring in mega deals. You can hire a new Michael Jordan or you can buy a CRM. Or I mean, there's a gazillion of ways to grow faster. Uh, so... We help the client to understand that, first of all, understand that the decision is much more complex than problem solution. You need to branch out the, 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 variable, the, the, the various categories available, but also the subcategories. So under each category, they're okay, there are versions of that. So take, we are both using glasses to make a consumer right. example. So if I have bad eyesight, which I have and probably you as well, the first mm-hmm. thing I did was to put in the retired person setting in my phone. But then the text is so big that I have to do something. So I was then going into the categories, which is contact lenses, it's surgery, glasses. Those are examples of categories. But if you go on the surgery, it's not, I mean, it's not just one type of surgery. You have laser, you can swap the lens, you can, mm-hmm. you can polish the lens. I mean, there are like four or five surgical, completely different methods. Those are subcategories. And it's not until further that you're into, okay, which clinic should I go to? So if a clinic is marketing only why their clinic is the best, they'll lose 
so many deals to people going for glasses. So first of all, you need to understand the whole decision tree for a matrix organization. And you also need to understand which topics are interesting for which layer in that organization. So when you're meeting a C-level person, if you are good at talking about what we call change drivers, which mm-hmm. are kind of the problems and the macro trends, right. you're good at talking about that. You're good at exploring the, the category choices available and the subcategories, you have their ear any day of the week because that's what they're interested in. They're, they're, they're going into directions, but they're not deciding which vendor to go with. They want to have that feedback later on because then they watch Steven, who sits four, under the four parking floors. He, wants, he, he needs to do that research. Uh, I'm just joking, obviously. But, yeah. uh, uh, no, that's true. But, but the people on the 17th floor, they're not doing that, so they're delegating it. So if you come to a C-level person demoing uh, a CRM tool, you'll be thrown out. So, so not only do we help them to, to branch out the various decisions for the various stakeholder groups, and also to find what what kind of what kind of hierarchy, what part of the hierarchy are they interested in? Then we help the both the marketing and the sales to run better discussions with their clients, because Stephen who sits under the parking the four minus four floor oil dripping on him, he can hear when the flush when the flush in the upper floors. He wants to know function features, but if you do a function and feature pitch to CEO of a twenty thousand people company, he's not listening or she's not listening. Right. So a, a lot of sales methods are about how to, how to reach the C-suite. And then when you come to the C-suite and you do that demo, I mean, seriously. <laughs> you have nothing to say once you get there. Yeah. No, no you, you, you have nothing to say. So you need to create the messaging architecture that is both taking these things into consideration, but is also crafted in cooperation between leadership, marketing, sales, customer success, and product management. Those functions need to agree on what we say, in which order, and what decisions the customer is making along the way. And if you can move the percentage needle in all these layers, you can double your revenue, everything else equal. By just being better at targeting the various decision layers, this is actually probably the biggest innovation we've done, which is the the messaging architecture chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. And this is what this is. So when we we have nine and a half out of ten as customer score, but when we ask them, and which piece did you appreciate the most? They're like, well, the positioning, the messaging, because we could definitely not crack that on our own. You completely changed the game there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, again, you use the key word. I think for the C level, it's it's yeah, vision, mission, and if you're not coalescing internally, which is really. You don't see enough, you know, so this consistent messaging from sales organizations, sales and marketing organizations, into large accounts. It's, right. Yeah, there's a sales version of it, and there's a marketing version of it. Yeah. And there's oftentimes a, a gap between the two. Yeah. So there's both a gap between the functions, but there's also a gap because they're not made with these many layers. They're they're too simplified. So you have the problem and the solution, but that's not the, what the customer is spending time on. They're thinking about, is this even the right direction? Like, is this the right type of solution? Mm-hmm. So the, the salesperson is going, yeah, they're now comparing us with our key competitor. No, 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 no. No, they're thinking about, is this even the right direction? Right. Yeah, well, I think there's sort of this fundamental misunderstanding on the part of most sellers about, and you address this, how companies actually make decisions. But if you sort of make it very simple, is the vendor choice is the last thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, 
So they're going to, I call it the, the what, how, and the who, right? Mm-hmm. First, we're going to figure out what it is yeah. that, that our challenges are and, and what some potential outcomes and risk mitigation strategies are. Yeah. The how are the categories, choices you're talking about. Yeah. And then the third order decision is who we're doing it with. Exactly. But we also multi-layer the how. So we, right. we break it down to categories, subcategories, sometimes sub-subcategories, and then right. we branch out the dimensions, capabilities, and functionalities. So, so we're, and with this system, in place, so it's not a system, but it's a, like an Excel or Google Sheet. When you've developed this, marketing and sales can take extracts from it depending on where they are. So we're now doing a new video, and we're going, so we're too often losing to this other subcategory it's not a competitor, but it's a different way to solve the same thing. And we face them again and again. So, so and you probably heard salespeople say, I didn't lose the deal. And you go, well, you didn't win it. Well, <laughs> well they went another direction. They, they did something completely different. But then you did lose the deal. That's the point. Exactly. You lost the deal, but just not to your competitor. You lost it to a completely different beast ate your lunch. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're... We're running out of time, but I wanted to cover one more thing real quickly before I go because it was it was a new term for me and I really liked it. Uh, so tell people about this is a very tactical thing. Uh, tell people about bee swarming. Right. Yeah, it's super super tactical. So in the mix of things you do to orchestrate a large deal, a lot of it. I mean, much like in politics, you need to win not just the complicated votes that you win in meetings, etc. You need to win the simple votes as well. I don't, right. I don't want to bring up a state in the US, but you know. Yeah, anyway, yes. You want to win the simple votes as well. So, so bee swarming is one of the many tactics that we use. It's very simple. You basically say, these are the 35 most important people inside this account and maybe some external stakeholders. And you basically, as a team, just visit their LinkedIn profiles. So all of a sudden, Andy, you have seven people from Megadeals checking you out the same day, and then mm-hmm. a month goes by, and then in, in one month, the same seven people are checking you out again, and you're going, you're going like, what's going on? Like, wh- why, why on earth are they checking me out now and then? And simultaneously, you're seeing videos and ads and articles like all over the media targeting you and your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Eventually, those things in combination are getting your interest for for sure and you're being infiltrated without knowing it. But the bee swarming itself is basically the act of, as a team, visiting the most important LinkedIn profiles and do it the same day so it's synchronized. So you basically say, okay, guys, today today it's the 35 most important people in AT&T. Let's do it. Yeah. No, I love it. I think it's a great tactic and definitely would capture someone's attention. And the, the word bee swarming comes, so, so I invented that word, but it, it was an, it's an analogy. So you're basically thinking, think you're standing in the reception of a big company. And then you put Andy Paul on 50,000 bees. You can, these bees cannot carry your big message, but they can carry Andy Paul into the right. ear of quite a lot of people. So this is a murmur, like, bzz, bzz, and, mm. and, and your, your name is spread in a very subtle way. Uh, well, bees are not subtle, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but uh, no, I love, I love the, the imagery of it. And I think, yeah, I just wanted to bring it up before I left because I thought it was a great, a great yeah. tactical suggestion. Yeah. And every 
you know company with even if you only have ten sellers or you don't even <laughs> you can do this type of thing. Oh, yeah, just totally. to get a little bit of time to it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right. Well, Christopher, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best way of doing that? So Christopher with the classic English spelling, Engman, E-N-G-M-A-N. So Christopher Engman on LinkedIn is probably easiest or megadies.com. You find me there as well, uh, where you also Perfect. find the book, Megadies, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. You've got some good YouTube videos going and yeah. So people check those out. So again, thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Christopher Engman, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.